Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Hey everyone, welcome to the Meat Eater Podcast. This is as high as we've ever been. In that, we're in the 19th floor of a hotel right now mm. in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> the Weston. Um, yeah, this is yeah as high as we've ever been looking out on Puget Sound. And I'm here with couple folks but the most important one right now is are you, do you still go by professor no you can't be a professor anymore i'm not a professor anymore no so what are you now uh just a citizen writer <laughs> i guess <laughs> oh yeah i could say that yeah. we're here with the writer dan now we had this debate earlier because i had always thought i had always like flores yeah that's correct yeah. Oh, okay that's yeah, what i thought this this guy, your uh, former student, doesn't know that. Yeah, he doesn't know. <laughs> what were you trying to tell me it was? I've always heard Flores. Yeah, with an Flores. Yeah, Flores. Yeah, it's uh, it's because it's pronounced uh, with a Louisiana French accent, like it's Fleur. Huh. Oh, so, I got you. Yeah, yeah. So writer and citizen Dan Flores, who I met when he was Professor Dan Flores years ago. I was in graduate school and I had to, t- I think it was part of the requirement. You take a seminar or something outside of your discipline. Yeah. I was a writer, a writing student and I took a class. Um, I took your class. What was your, that class called? Do you remember the one I was in? It was, it was an environmental writing seminar, yeah. I think is what you took. Yeah. And yeah. I was just humiliated in it. 
um, way out of my league. All these guys I knew all about writing about things that they were sure happened instead of things you thought might have happened, um, which is part of the being a historian, I think, that they try to train you in that. I recall you made an A in that class, though. Yeah, but I was like, <laughs> I was outgunned. There were some good students in there, man. But I, I met Dan and took that class, and it was uh, just had a profound impact on me. Um, the body of literature that, you know, we looked at and just a, like a way of thinking about things. Yeah. Um, we had a, your student on who, who's here, Randall Williams, uh, on talking about his dissertation he did and, and you were involved in that as an advisor. Or, yeah, that's right. Um, but just, to, just again, can you hit what, um, in your own words, like what an environmental historian is and does and looks at? It's not it's, that term's not a term people are familiar with outside of yeah, academics. It right. seems. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of term that you end up explaining to people in bars quite a bit uh, when they ask you, you know, what you do or what you write about. I mean, basically, it's a it's a way of thinking about the relationship between people and the natural world, and so it's and and doing it using history, which of course causes you to to examine changes over time. And so it's uh, environmental history. And it's only been around for about 35 or 40 years now as a, as a field of uh, study. In fact, we're in Seattle right now because the American Society for Environmental History is meeting here. This is its annual conference, and it held its first one in 1976. So that'll give you an idea of how recent this field uh, has been around. But it's basically a way to uh, to look at the history of how people have interacted with nature. And that's a broad enough uh, spectrum of study that you just get to write and think about all kinds of things, you know, not just the environmental movement itself or the history of conservation, Teddy Roosevelt, but, uh, I mean, in Randall's case, for example, he he got to think and write about how hunters uh, have played a role in American culture in the 20th century. And the thing I've been interested in uh, most in the last few years has been uh, animals and the relationship between people and animals. Yeah, and you have two books coming out right now. How many books? How many like? book-length manuscripts have you published? Uh, these two uh, will be the ninth and 10th. Uh, so, and that dates back to about 1984. My first book came out in 1984. So and you've written hundreds of academic papers. Well, not journal. hundreds, but I've written in an academic papers. Po- popular in ap- academic articles. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of popular things. I probably have published more popular things than academic pieces, but yeah. I've done, I don't know, I actually I'm just having the hazard of guess, but maybe two or three dozen academic papers and peer reviewed kind of journals. Mm-hmm. And then I often spun off a you know, a, a popular article or two from those kinds of things. Oh, is that is that how you work generally? Like you'll find stuff through your research that would you're like Yeah that you know would be suitable to a popular audience. Yeah. So, you know, I mean writing for academic journals is a wonderful thing. It's how you make your reputation in a field and get a professorship and and all that sort of stuff but 
they don't pay you any money for those kinds of things. And I always, I mean, I started out as a magazine writer before I ever became an academic. So I always had in my mind when I would do an academic piece, so how can I spin this off somehow as a, you know, as a popular article and uh, reach a bigger audience with it for one thing, uh, yeah. make a little bit of change from it as well, uh, but primarily kind of reach more people. And so, yeah, a lot of the things I've done as as academic and scholarly things have ended up as, you know, either getting absorbed into a book or, or published as a as a popular article. So what are, what are the two books you have now and why in the world are you publishing two books at the same time? <laughs> yeah, that's an unusual thing. Um, so the, the books are uh, American Serengeti, uh, which is um, uh, just a day or two away from uh, officially uh, being out. Uh, and the subtitle of that book is uh, The Last Big Animals of the Great Plains. And the other book is called Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History. And that book comes out uh, about the middle of May. Are you writing them both at the same time? Well, I wasn't really. And you know, the, the truth is the, the books are connected to one another because um, the Coyote book or a Coyote book was originally contracted to the publisher of the American Serengeti book, and which was a university press publisher. And I, I retired from the University of Montana two years ago. And as I got close to retirement, I realized that, so there's not really much point in writing books for university presses anymore. I mean, that's really great when you're a professor and you get rewarded by your university for doing that and in the field for doing that. But uh, I knew I was about to retire and so and to reach bigger audiences, I wanted to do a book, um, uh, start writing books basically for uh, commercial presses. And so I had a, I acquired an agent who asked me about three or four years ago, so what are you working on now? I said, well, I've got a coyote book that's contracted to the University of Kansas Press. And uh, he said, well, why don't you write a proposal out of that and let me take it to New York and see if I can sell it. And I did, and he did. Uh, the problem was, so that was all great, but the problem was University of Kansas Press didn't take all that kindly to us sort of taking yeah. their book away from them. And so the only way to kind of resolve things with with uh, Kansas was to promise them another book, gotcha. which, yeah, which they agreed to, but they also said, okay, that's fine. We want to keep the same deadline you had with us, however. And so <laughs> basically this time last year, I had a deadline for the Coyote book in New York of January the 30th, and I had a deadline for the American Serengeti book in Lawrence, Kansas of May the 1st. So I finished up the coyote book and uh inhaled a couple of times took a couple of deep breaths and uh since i was already used to getting up every day and writing four or five or six hours i just kept on going and in another four months or so managed to finish off that that, really yeah that american serengeti book but in a way you've been researching that book 
yeah. for your entire career. Indeed, I had, and I, you know, and I had, uh, I had written some of it actually um, already. I mean, I ended up, um, I ended up revising pretty considerably the things that I'd already written. But yeah, I'd, I'd worked on Buffalo uh, years ago. I'd written a kind of a major scholarly piece about Buffalo that sort of reimagined, reconceptualized what happened to them in the 19th century uh, that became a, a pretty successful academic article. Yeah, I've, I've had uh, a lot of great luck just telling that story for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being like, you know what I was reading? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I always credit you, though, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and you uh, you did credit me, and I appreciated that in your, in your uh, Buffalo book. But I, so that story, I kind of, um, you know, I knew pretty well, and that provided me with a starting point for the chapter that's on Buffalo in this American Serengeti book. So give, but lay, lay out the premise of the American Serengeti. When you say the last big ones, you mean the last big ones that are here now, or the last big ones like the ones we lost at the end of the Pleistocene? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question. I mean, I actually talk about both versions of the American Serengeti. The Pleistocene version, um, doesn't get as much coverage as the historic version of the American Serengeti, but I spend a good bit of time talking about it because down to 10,000 years ago, I mean, we really, we had an African analog on the American Great Plains uh, with all the uh, the charismatic megafauna that were here. I mean, we had elephants in the form of mammoths. Uh, we had uh, We had camels. We had... Uh, of course, huge herds of giant bison that were sort of the, the counterpart to wildebeest herds in Africa. We had a lion, the steppe lion, which was actually a larger lion than the African lion. We had uh, a giant and very gracile short-faced bear that was uh, uh, down to about 12,000 years ago was probably one of the most formidable predators anywhere in the world. Some people think that humans weren't able to to uh, migrate to North America until about 15,000 years ago because these short-faced bears were there at the Bering Strait and they presented such a formidable barrier uh, yeah. to humans that we basically they had to b- become extinct before humans were able to get to North America. So there was this large bestiary of animals down to 10,000 years ago, a giant hunting, very fast hunting hyena. Uh, There were cheetah-like cats that were related to cougars. Um, Cougars are kind of their descendants, but they were uh, curved fang cats, one called a scimitar cat, and of course, uh, you know, the, the these cats that we imagine from the Pleistocene running down the calves of of mammoths. But most of that bestiary, with the exception of five or six animals, went extinct about 10,000 years ago. In an extinction scenario, frankly, that we still don't quite understand. I mean, Yeah, like we don't understand it temporally. We don't understand it temporally or in terms of cause. Yeah. For example, one of the most common creatures of the Pleistocene American Serengeti were bands of wild horses. Some biologists believe that 
they comprised as much as 20 to 30% of the biomass of grazing animals right? on the Great Plains, down to about eight or 9,000 years ago. And they, the thing about horses is they migrated across the Bering Strait, and they ended up in Asia and in Africa, where they became zebras and quaggas and, and related animals uh, and European horses. And they survived in all those places, but for some reason that we don't grasp, about eight or 9,000 years ago, all those horses became extinct in North America. And so we lost this giant biomass of grazing animals in the form of wild horses that completely disappeared from the Pleistocene Serengeti. And we don't know exactly why. I mean, some of the speculation is that they contracted diseases. Um, some the, some the of the Blitzkrieg is the, is, is the Blitzkrieg hypothesis totally out of fashion now? It is not out of fashion. Can you explain it? Yeah, and uh, so there's a, a, a paleobiologist. Give, give all the ideas. Yeah, the so the ideas range from uh, the Blitzkrieg that you mentioned, which was popularized by a paleobiologist Martin named Paul something. Martin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Martin at the University of Arizona, uh, who wrote uh, a bunch of really compelling books. The most, the last one he wrote was called Twilight of the Mammoths, and. Um, his argument was that about 15,000 years or so ago, uh, humans began migrating out of Asia into North America, confronting a bestiary of animals that had never seen human predators before. And these, these people were very accomplished predators with uh, a very sophisticated toolkit. And the Blitzkrieg model speculates that in a period of less than 300 years, these people expanded from Siberia into the Americas all the way down to the tip of South America and wiped out most of these species that were confronting human predators for the first time and just sort of collapsed in the wake of this assault. It's out on one hand it's outlandish. Yeah. On the other hand, when you look at the when you look at how where things went extinct when and when people showed up there, yeah. and that you have things like mammoths on Wrangell Island yeah. up until 4,000 years ago, yeah. and no one had ever stepped foot yeah. on Wrangell Island. That's exactly right. It just gets weird, man. It does get weird. And it's Martin argued, and other people have argued, that as humans spread out of Africa, we actually kind of did this all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of the really good examples of it are, for example, in the islands of Polynesia, where as soon as humans arrive, um, for instance, in Hawaii, uh, 30-some species of flightless birds become extinct within a couple of hundred years because they're such easy targets for human hunters. And humans usually arrive with dogs and sometimes with hogs. And this suite of animals that we bring along with us as domesticates sort of play a role in and the simplification of the ecologies of all these far-flung places that we get into. Yeah, in Europe, and I'm not arguing, like I don't know enough to argue for it or against it, but I'm just talking about the parts that are compelling, yeah. is that Europe had versions of all these things we're talking about in the American, what you describe as the American Serengeti, but they went through it 30,000 years ago. That's right. And we know that humans were like, that, you know, that, that human hunters, like basically us, like people that were they alive today could fly an airplane, you know, that they arrived there 
around those times and you saw the same thing happen again. But on the other hand, it's just like, how in the world could you kill them all? Yeah, it's a, it's a real Adelattles. It's with Adelattles and that's the primary, (laughs) that's the primary weapon they had. Adelattles and sometimes just stabbing spears. But, uh, so get, lay the other ones out. I, I kind of hijacked it with the, yeah, no, the, bl- the blitz screen thing is so fascinating. It's, 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 it's not as fun as it's more fun than the things like the disease. Yeah, it is. And so, uh, the best, uh, evidence, by the way, for the blitzkrieg is in North America is with mammoths. Okay. I mean, we, we've only recently, for instance, actually discovered kill sites of horses in North America. From I didn't, know, I, didn't years know ago. That, I didn't know there was ever any known kill sites. There so. have been some discovered in the last seven or eight, ten years. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and those are the first ones. So part of the problem with the Blitzkrieg model is that, okay, so if that's your model, then you expect to go out there and archaeology, paleoarchaeology, is going to yield up all these sites with slaughtered animals, sort of the way it does in Europe. Uh, at uh, with horses in France. I mean, there's a spot in France where something like thirty or forty thousand horse carcasses were killed and butchered by human hunters. They were driving them off cliffs. Well, I mean, that was the speculation for a long time. It looks like what they were actually doing was driving them into corrals. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. Yeah, they were driving them into corrals. I'm and, good because that's yeah. such a horrific vision. I know. Horses being driven off a cliff, it's and I'm a, glad it was corrals. It's, yeah, it's a horrific <laughs> vision, and there's, there's a wonderful 19th century illustration of horses pouring off a cliff in France. But it looks as if what they actually were doing They're were building corrals them. and corralling them and then, and then killing them. Some people argue, in fact, that the reason we have modern horses which most of which spring from European and African sources is because about 6,000 years ago, we domesticated them before we could kill them all off. Oh, is that right? We finally domesticated them and that's what enabled them to survive. So that might be why in, in the mythology of Plains tribes, horses sometimes play a role. Or am I wrong? I remember someone pointing out that like the, 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 this idea of, of the mounted Plains hunter. Yeah. Was a two is like a, a brief phenomenon. Oh yeah, it's uh, that started 250 years ago. That's right. But they're like, how could it be so ingrained? How could the horse become so quickly so ingrained in the mythology? It just had a, such a profound impact on them. Well, I mean, some some tribes. Uh, I saw an exhibit in in uh, Calgary several years ago that was curated by the Blackfoot Confederacy, and at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, and and these Blackfoot elders said in the text of this exhibit that their mythological stories remembered horses from thousands of years ago. And so they they argued that they had preserved a memory of horses from back in the Pleistocene. And when in the 1700s they encountered European horses, they were able to draw on some mythology about these animals. Um, yeah, you hear the term collective memory. Yeah, uh, and a collective tribal memory is, I mean, I, you know, I don't denigrate that at all. It's, it's entirely possible that that was the case. But I would say uh, that Martin's argument about a blitzkrieg is most evident with mammoths, where we do have kill sites, with projectile points like Clovis points embedded in the skeletal material of the recovered animals. And there, there are a lot of, of Clovis sites with mammoths. 
Do you remember that you and I visited one of those sites together? Well, I wrote about that. That's sort of Blackwater Draw. That's how the (laughs) American Serengeti book opens. In fact, is when that with that visit that you and I Mm. made over to Blackwater Draw, uh, and sort of giving ourselves uh, our own personal tour because I recall we drove all the way over there from Santa Fe and the place was closed, so we just hopped over the fence and and gave ourselves a tour. But uh, yeah, so the Blackwater Draw. I mean, that's that's the 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 original Clovis site in North America where uh, butchered mammoths were first found with uh, uh, with evidence of human hunting, but there's not much evidence for the other animals. I mean, you'd think that there would be all these camel sites out there with butchered remains and points and horse sites, and and so that's been one of the problems more recently last. 10 or 15 years with the Blitzkrieg model is that there's not, there aren't the sites out there. Maybe yeah. we just haven't found them, but except for the mammoth sites, there's not much out there. There was a, I believe at Lindenmeyer, the Lindenmeyer site near Fort Collins, Colorado, yeah. there was a four shaft made from a camel bone. Yeah. Yeah. So there's evidence obviously that they were using or picking it up. Even, yeah. Picking you know? it up. They were at least exploiting the remains of yeah. camels, whether they were camels, whether they were killing them or not. So what is the horse site that turned up? It's one. It's one near Boulder, uh, Colorado, uh-huh. uh, and I've not read much about it or visited it. But it's one that uh, was unearthed. I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago. So there is a horse site near Boulder that shows evidence of human butchering and evidently uh, human kills of horses. The problem with that, of course, is that you'd think if the horse comprised 30% of the biomass of all these grazing animals, there would be scores of sites like that, and we've struggled to try to find any at all. So that's led some people to say, okay, what actually happened to these animals was a changing climate. We know that about the time, so two things happened, of course, that about the time all these animals disappeared, humans arrived from Asia, and the climate started changing. And the climate was cycling into a much warmer and drier regime. And so one of the arguments about what happened to all these original American Serengeti animals is that they basically succumbed to a changing climate. They were evolved to kind of an ice age climate. And when the climate turned warm and dry, uh, it basically dried up their habitat. And so they disappeared as a result of that. And then one of the more most recent explanations is uh, a disease explanation, which is so far mostly speculative because we don't, other than people saying, okay, we can't figure this out. There's got to be some other reason. Yeah. And maybe it's disease. The problem well, is it that, had to be diseases, right? Because you're talking about be, herbivores, carnivores. That's exactly And right. then I think people focus on all these large animals, but we lost many, many small animals. Lost a lot of small animals, although uh, at least in, in Martin's argument, it's mostly the large animals and a lot of the small animals are intact. But Martin even argues that, I mean, so for instance, some of the, I mean, horses specialized in stiper grasses, needle and thre- thread grasses, and those grasses are still all over the West. Mm-hmm. So it's like the fodder that they were grazing is still there, but the animals disappeared. Yeah. So the truth is, right now, this is one of the great mysteries of North American 
Uh, Dude, I'd give so much money to know the answer. I would too. I'd love to know. <laughs> Even but, if I had to keep it secret. But we have not figured it out yet. All we know is that that version, that much uh, African-like version of the Serengeti, disappeared between eight and 12,000 years ago. So what are you calling the Serengeti? Like, lay it off me in terms of... of, of Ge- in, geography? Yeah. It's the uh, it's basically the American Great Plains. So the hundredth meridian to the Rockies. Yeah, it's the hundredth meridian. Uh, in some instances, for some species, slightly farther east, uh, but basically about the hundredth meridian to the Rockies and from Texas uh, into Alberta and Saskatchewan. So just for people to get a grasp on it, to be like the Texas Panhandle, right? Yeah. Western Oklahoma, Western Kansas. Exactly. Kind of all of the Eastern Daco- Colorado, all of the Dakotas. Yeah, all the, all the Dakotas. Eastern Montana, most of Eastern Nebraska, Colorado. That's it. Portions of New Mexico. Yeah, Eastern New Mexico, and then up into a handful of Canadian provinces, right? Yeah, up in uh, basically the plains sort of start grading as you go farther north. They begin to grade into Aspen Mots uh, uh, at about. Oh, I don't know, maybe the 52nd parallel, 51st or 52nd parallel as you go north. And the Canadian-U.S. border is the 49th parallel. So a couple of degrees north of the Canadian border, you start losing the the savannas, the grasslands, and you begin to have that country broken up by copses of trees. So that's basically it. So it's this, it's this long... North-south stretching uh, province east of the Rocky Mountains that stretches about fifteen to seventeen hundred miles north and south, and from the Rockies eastward it goes maybe four hundred miles. Uh, so it's that area, and that area for eight hundred thousand years has been one of the marvels of the world in terms of enormous numbers of big animals, grazers and all the predators that, that preyed on them. And yeah, so that's it. Man, between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never ending. I'm talking about the, the, the subscriptions, the monthly dings on your credit card. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. Meaning, you know, like, let's say there's like a show that comes out and you want to watch it and you wind up doing like this free trial and you forget about it. And then two years later, you realize you're paying those hosers 12 bucks a month for something you don't use. It finds that stuff, cancels it. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. 
do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. So earlier you were talking about, I asked you if you meant the ones that used to be here or the ones that are here now. You're taking like the whole dynamic view of it. What's here, what's here now. Yeah. Do you get into who lived and why did they live? I guess because you can't, you can't say why they lived if you don't know what, why the other ones succumbed. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, this is one of the things about sort of ecological history or environmental history is that, uh, you know, as John Muir said about things, everything is connected to everything else. And so it becomes kind of impossible to just look at a snapshot, say the 19th century, when we know there were millions of buffalo on the Great Plains without understanding how they got there. And the reason they were there in our historical account from the 19th century is because of that extinction that happened 10,000 years ago. Only a small handful of animals survived that extinction. Bison were one of the primary survivors of it. Gray wolves became a primary survivor. Grizzly bears, uh, coyotes, elk, of course, pronghorn antelope, which is really one of the most fascinating animals of the Great Plains because those animals are still completely adapted to the Pleistocene Serengeti. They are, they're able to outrun, pronghorns can outrun today their fastest pursuers by 20 to 25 miles an hour. Yeah. And the reason they run so much faster than gray wolves do, for instance, is because they evolved to outrun cheetahs, 
and hunting hyenas. And so here they are, 10,000 years later, still adapted to outrunning all these animals that disappeared uh, thousands and thousands of years ago. You know, I, I was... I touched on this a little bit in something I did recently, and I pointed out their uh, great reluctance to jumping. Yeah. And it had many, many people come forward with videos and photos of them, in fact, jumping. But a great reluctance to jump. Great reluctance (laughs) to jump because they evolved on on, uh, grassland plains without the necessity of jumping. Yeah. No I mean, timber. Yeah, very little timber. Very little timber. And that's one of the reasons why when you if you watch pronghorns, I mean, their technique for going through a barbed wire fence usually is to turn sideways and go through the strands. I mean, they don't do what you would think looking at them a gazelle would do, which would be to easily bound over it or what a mule deer does. Instead, they'll they'll go at a fence and go through the strands of barbed wire, sometimes in a big cloud of, yeah. of hair. <laughs> but all those those creatures then survived. And the reason, for instance, pronghorns and bison become so numerous is because they inherited grasslands where most of their grazing competitors have vanished. And so it's possible for bison for instance, which 10,000 years ago, probably, uh, I mean, bison were maybe only 5 million strong, but with all the other grazing animals gone, it's possible for bison to expand their populations into the 25 to 30 million animals that were here uh, in the 1900s or the 1800s. And so it's a, it's a version of the American Serengeti that sort of is the next step down the historical timeline with a smaller contingent of animals, but nonetheless one that had so much magic and poetry to it that when Europeans began traveling to the Great Plains in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, I mean, one of the most common literary motifs of the 19th century West are these rhapsodies about yeah. the multitudes of animals that people were were encountering. So much that, I mean, European sportsman, uh, Sir William Drummond Stewart in the 1830s, uh, Sir George Gore in the 1850s. That was the guy Jim Bridger took on a little jaunt. That's, that's right? exactly a right. Bloody, a bloody little jaunt. A bloody little jaunt. <laughs> These guys came over and they basically, they conducted... Uh, safaris uh, on the Great Plains at the at, at almost precisely the same time that the first safaris uh, were happening in Africa when British sportsmen were going into South Africa in the 1830s. That's the same time that William Drummond Stewart was was doing these high end guided safari hunts in the American West out on the Great Plains. And uh, I mean, the stories of those are pretty remarkable. Give a snapshot of the abundance of some of the animals besides the ones we hear about. Like, you know, everyone's heard. Heard bison. Yeah. yeah I mean, just, yeah. you know, that looked like clouds moving and it took days for the herds to pass. But you never hear someone articulate like how many, you know, like pronghorn or antelope were on the landscape or how many bighorn sheep. Do, were people ever encountering those in a way that would be surprising to us now? Oh, yeah, they were. I mean, one of my favorite descriptions of those animals is. Uh, John James Audubon's in 1843. I mean, here you've got a guy, you know, who is uh, the most celebrated 
uh, nature painter in the United States. Uh, he had just completed in 1838 The Birds of America that made him a, a worldwide uh, literary uh, and artistic figure, had gone on a, a book tour of Europe with his hair cascading down around his shoulders and dressed in buckskins as kind of the classic American noble savage. And he returns to the United States after this very successful book tour and decides he's going to do the same thing for the mammals of America that he had just done for the birds. He had painted 435 American birds, all life-size on the page. And so he decides he can't obviously paint elk and bison life-size on a page, but he's going to try to do something similar. He's going to try to to portray all the great native creatures of North America. In order to do that, he's got to make a trip to the West. So he and his sons um, and a couple of companions in 1843 go up the Missouri River. And he gets into western North Dakota, uh, approaching the Montana border, and writes some of the most extraordinary descriptions of the multitudes of animals that he's seeing that uh, I've ever read. I mean, he says uh, uh, that no one could conceive of the numbers of animals of many different varieties that they were seeing day after day after day from the prow of this steam vessel, the Omega, uh, that was pushing up to Fort Union. And he closed one of my favorite lines of his. He, he wrote his wife a letter, and he closed it with, he was writing late at night, and he was describing for all these animals he was seeing uh, every day. He said, I've never seen so many wolves in my life. I mean, we're going up the river, and there's a wolf lying on the sandbar. There's another one climbing up the bank on the other side. There are some sitting out on sandbars in the middle of the river watching us like dogs. There is a picturesque herd of bison at the same time cantering along and in front of us in the river a herd of about 30 elk are swimming the river and the, the racks of the bulls are projecting out of the water and the tips are sweeping along the surface and there are mountain rams and he just goes on and on and he finally says to her I've got to stop writing I'm not going to be able to go to sleep I'm, I'm too excited to keep going I just I can't write anymore and he he gives you this you know, this lived sense of what it was like to see all these animals. Now, you know, what I've done in, in the book is, okay, I've provided the what we think, what biologists think were the numbers of these animals. We think there were probably, depending on the climate, between 20 million and 30 million bison, 30 million when the climate was good, there were plenty of rains and the grass was lush, probably 20 million when there were droughts. And so it's it's not a static figure. It, it obviously, No, but that's consistent yeah. with what we see today with wildlife numbers. I mean, Absolutely. L- lesser versions, but I mean, it's, yeah. no, it's nothing to have populations increase and decrease like that. Absolutely. And I mean, a pretty, on a pretty short time scale. On a short time scale, and that's, how, that's exactly how it functioned. It's, it's more a... An, an algebraic kind of equation than it is some static figure. But the static figure that we have, and the same thing happened with these animals too, for pronghorns is about 15 million. Um, for What do we have now? 
Uh, we've got uh, at present, let's see, about uh, 600,000. Yeah. So from 15 million. And I mean, the one of the stories I tell in the book is that the Llano Estacado Plateau of West Texas, Eastern New Mexico, that's the country where you and I went to look at the Blackwater Draw Elephant Site. Uh, that was one of the best pronghorn ranges in the West. It probably had, during the heyday of pronghorns, as many as uh, two and a half, three million pronghorns. Vernon Bailey of the United States Biological Survey made a trip across the Llano Estacado in 1899, and at that point he counted 32. Oh, yeah. 32 of them were left in 1899. Uh, in that particular part of the of the Great Plains, so so I'm, what happened to all those? I mean, you hear like we've gone into such excruciating detail about what yeah. happened to all the yeah, uh, you know, like all the factors that went into the what near happened? near extermination yeah. of the buffalo or bison and and uh, you know where what they were being used for and the commodification of them. You never read about some guy just stacking up a shitload of antelope and sending the hides and tongues off in rail cars. But they did that. They did exactly that. And the reason they did that was because after the Civil War, I mean, you've got this this large contingent of young American men who have fought in the war for both the Union and the Confederacy who know weapons very well. They know how to shoot. And many of them return home, especially the Confederates, to a devastated region where you couldn't really make a living. And one of the things they did, we think probably as many as 20,000 of them probably did this, is they went out onto the Great Plains. And for as long as the animals lasted, they hunted for a living. They hunted for the market. And once the bison were gone, they turned to each of the other animals in turn. Just supplying supplying meat locally and export and export. That's right. Hides, uh, dried flesh, whatever, whatever you could basically get by shooting these animals down and selling them to the American or the Canadian or the European market. And so, once the bison were gone, they turned their hand to pronghorns and began doing exactly what they had done with bison to pronghorns. I mean, they shot them down. They One of the things you could do with pronghorns, they were reluctant to leave their ranges, their home ranges. And you could get a band of them running, and they would not exit their home range. And people, these hunters on horses, could just work their way around in the center of this this running herd of antelope, and after they would make the rounds of about a 10 or 12 or 15-mile home range three or four times, they were completely exhausted. And at that point, you could almost walk up to them and club them in the head. And so using techniques like that and also uh, in places like the Black Hills, they would surround pronghorns in the winter when the snow was too deep for them to get away Mm -hmm. and just kill them by, I mean, like, like hunters killed harp seals, uh, in the 20th century and just clubbed them down and basically ripped their hides off the sometimes they would sell the meat but mostly they were selling the hides but it's not a good it's not a quality hide that's why it's, it's not so a surprising. quality hide but it was what was left yeah the bison are gone 
And so they do this in turn to, to pronghorns, to elk. Um, and I mean, by 1905, uh, the bighorn rams of the Great Plains, uh, the mountain sheep are gone too. In places like the Northern Plains, Badlands, they're gone. Yeah. And in, the, and in that case, you also have, like we mentioned earlier, like there's always this idea that disease may have played a role. I think with bighorn sheep, as sheep came out, you also have. There's no doubt about it. You know, you have pneumonia, yeah. which may, with that particular animal, might have been more devastating. Might I know people, like yeah. people now and then try to make the case that what happened that you can't explain what happened to the buffalo unless you look at disease. I don't know if that I that just seems to be an idea that's sort of always out there. No, it's definitely there and I think it's it's correct the problem with it and uh, I mean so here's an example of it. We know that the last 800 to 1000 bison that were out there that were being rounded up to provide the nucleus of the herds we have today, they almost all all had bovine tuberculosis mm-hmm. uh they were infected with that some of the herds ended up uh getting brucellosis uh by 1897 1900 not all of them did but some of them ended up with brucellosis which is a another exotic disease and one of the diseases that we don't know much about the impact of but probably did have some impact because there's sure evidence that it was out there is that sometime after 1800, anthrax probably got among the western bison herds. And so and these are all Eurasian livestock diseases brought in. Eurasian uh, livestock diseases brought in with brought in with non-native animals. Yeah, and especially yeah. when uh, when oxen and cattle were being driven over the immigrant trails through the Buffalo Range from the 1820s. There's a possibility of disease transmission yeah. there. Yeah, there's a possibility of disease transfer, and, and it almost certainly happened. The problem with it is that it's really hard to quantify. We don't really know yeah. what what kind of effect it had, except that it probably had a pretty considerable effect. So very very obviously the same thing happened with sheep. So what what's the time frame like there? When guys, when, when you say that you had all these market hunters who were making money and sometimes good money, Honey for the buffalo hide market. Yeah, when they had turned their attention to antelope or turned their attention to elk, it still it probably took decades, right? I mean, to get things to such a depleted, to get things so depleted that we started to take legal action to try to protect yeah. animals and regulate hunting didn't happen uh, as slowly as you would think. I mean, it was pretty quick because there were a lot of guys out there, and a lot of them had become very skilled in doing this. Uh, they knew the weaknesses of the animals. And, I mean, I'll give you one example. And uh, there's a, a cowboy named George Wolforth who was rounding up stray cattle um, on the Texas Llano Estacado uh, in a canyon where I used to live when I lived in West Texas, Yellow House Canyon. He, he rides up one morning out of Yellow House Canyon and of course, there's this gigantic plateau out in front of him that stretches 150 miles east and west and north and south, about 300 miles. And at he, a slight pitch. At a slight pitch to the, <laughs> from west to east. That's right. And he rides up on this, out of the canyon, up on this plateau, and it's a foggy morning. And he's sitting on his horse looking for strays and sees the fog beginning to lift. And as it lifts, and this is, this is 1884, as it lifts 
what he sees, he says, as far as the eye could see, and the fog made it this sort of mystical, unreal kind of image, all he could see on the plain were there were no more buffalo. He saw no more wolves. He saw no bears. He saw no elk. All he could see were bands of pronghorns and bands of wild horses. Those were the last two surviving animals. And when it was only pronghorns left, when the elk had either been killed or driven into the Rockies, because that's what happened to some of these animals, uh, they basically fled to the mountains from this kind of pressure. When it's nothing but wild horses and pronghorns left, the hunters went after the pronghorns and mustangers went after the horses. And, I mean, we know, for example... Why were they after the horses for what? Well, Not, not meat. No, no, not meat. They were after them for two things. Basically, they were especially hired cowboys from the ranches that were then beginning to populate the Great Plains, were shooting them down because they were competition for grass. Grazing competition. For, yeah, yeah, for cattle. And so they were cowboys were hired just to go out and shoot them down. But by about 1915 or so, uh, and, uh, you know, you have to, when you think about wild horses now, what you have to realize is that Wild horses, remember, had gone extinct in the Pleistocene. But we had reintroduced them. We Europeans had reintroduced them to the Americas uh, in the 1500s. And one of the remarkable environmental stories in North America is the success of the horse when it's reintroduced to the place where horses had evolved. Because North America is where horses had evolved. 56 million years of horse evolution. Yeah. So what factor drove them to extinction that then went away in time for them to come back? We have no idea, but when they were... It's so bizarre, man. It's bizarre as hell, but when they were reintroduced, they went feral across the Great Plains, I mean, in an instant. Now, you've written about that. Like, you've written about their, the routes they were through trade and theft and wandering. Yeah, they got primarily the horses got loose in the West as a result of what's called the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 in New Mexico. It's when the Pueblo Indians drive the Spaniards out of New Mexico for a dozen years and capture all their herds. I mean, they they trade, for example, sheep and goats to the Navajos, which is what creates the modern Navajo economy of, of herding those animals. And they traded horses up the Rockies within about 50 years. Horses had gotten from New Mexico all the way into Canada. Traded them up both sides of the Rockies. Both sides yeah. of the Rockies, which is what creates the, the Great Plains horse-riding Indians. But a lot of horses got away and scattered into the plains as a result of the Pueblo Revolt. And so that's 1680. We think by 1800, wild horse herds on the Great Plains probably numbered as high as between one and two million animals. I mean, they became uh, the basis of a major economy in the West for about a century. How many horses live in the U.S. now? Not wild, just how many horses? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't know. I, I probably knew that figure at some point, but I don't recall. Yeah. How many wild horses we got? Well, we've got about forty to 50,000 wild horses, but one of the interesting things about that's, them... That's a controversial animal. It's a controversial animal, uh, and one of the reasons is because... It's not the Great Plains where they are. They're out in the sagebrush deserts of the Great Basin, particularly in Nevada. And so 
it was the Great Plains where they really went feral when they were returned here. And we think probably by 1900, the number may have been as high as 3 million wild horses on the Great Plains. But about 1915, we discovered uh, that uh, Americans had sort of created a new economy with pet dogs and cats that needed food. And so the Midwest, especially the Kennel Ration Company, began to build pet food plants. And what happened to most of the wild horses in the West by the late teens and 20s was that they ended up getting caught by Mustangers and shipped by rail to Illinois and turned into cans of dog food. And Illinois kept kept slaughtering horses up until very recently. Up until very recently. That's right. Now, J.R. Simplot, you know, when you buy a French fry, you know, very likely came off, you know, it's the result of J.R. Simplot's work. J.R. Simplot got his start. Can you explain that? I'm sorry. Oh, like, like he's a, J.R. Simplot is a major provider of seed potatoes, and I think they do a lot of, they do, Am I right today? I don't know if they still do. Provide like McDonald's. Oh, yeah. French yeah, fries. That's the source. Yeah. yeah. He got, you know, he got his start. He bought uh, a bunch of teachers somewhere were getting paid with these bonds because of some school funding shortages. Uh-huh. And, he started, and he bought the bonds at 50 cents on the dollar or something like that and used, and then when the bonds matured, turned around using to buy a bunch of piglets and went out in the desert and fattened all those piglets on wild horse meat. Yeah. And that was sort of the start of yeah. Simplot. Then I, when I was, when I lived in Miles City, Montana, we had a guy in his nineties that lived next to us. And in the thirties, he had been a mustanger. Well, he was raising pigs on horse on horse. Yeah. And he said that they would have the most beautiful sheen. The pigs would yeah. get the most beautiful sheen. He said a very tight curl in the tail. Uh, uh-huh. Perfectly erect ears, like every sign of a well-fed pig. He was reluctant to send the pigs to slaughter with meat in their belly. He would finish them on barley just to clean their system out. He said they would visibly deteriorate, deteriorate in quality. In, in before his eyes. On huh? barley. And he would take a horse, take it into the pig pen, shoot the horse, tie it off to a fence post, pull the hide with a tractor, and sell the hide for three bucks. Yeah. Then he'd give the pigs a day or two. And they'd eat it down to the bone. And then before the bones would splinter, he'd go in and throw all the bones out of there. One day, him and his brother were cutting wood, and he cut his thumb off on the saw, and his brother flicked that into the pig pen. Pigs ate that and send those off. That's a great story, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) And he was just like, What did that finger do or that thumb do to the sheen? I don't know how to fatten them up. Yeah, so someone bought a pig that had actually been eating folks. But um, <laughs> it's just like the picture he paints of like how horses were used and yeah. viewed is bizarre. Well, yeah, that's so that's one uh, one way that they were used. I mean, I can tell you two others. There was an attempt actually <laughs> in, in the 1890s to use horse meat in the United States to feed the poor. In the 1890s. In the 1890s, yeah. There's a, I've got a newspaper article from 1897. In fact, it's over here on the Pacific Coast. I think it's from Seattle. Someone arguing, yeah. arguing what we ought that, to do. That's what we ought to do in order to, to 
feed America's poor is that we should feed them because we've got a lot of horses, plenty of wild horses too. And uh, that's what one good use of horse meat would be is to feed the poor. But one one way that I guarantee you lots of wild horses ended up sacrificing their lives for kind of a dual good as people saw it in those days was they would be caught and led out, shot, and then laced with strychnine in order to kill the one last big animal, charismatic animal of the old American Serengeti, which was gray wolves. And so the technique that the, the biological survey used for the teens and 20s and into the 30s when there were still plenty of horses around in order to poison wolves uh, in large numbers and to try to eradicate coyotes as well was to lead horses out and shoot them and lace the carcass and with you, poison. You'd, you'd, you'd inject the, before the vascular system shut down, you'd inject the strychnine in there to, to distribute so, it. So it would distribute it through the, through the body. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, again, yeah. for better grazing, for better cattle country? Not grazing, but just to get no, rid of predators. To, to get pre- rid of predation. predators, yeah. Right, but, but on cattle. Yeah, for the, for the sake, certainly for the sake of converting that landscape into a working agricultural right. society. And, you know, I mean, one of the things I say in this book is that, first of all, thinking about the Great Plains as uh, this – grand wildlife spectacle that you could, uh, without any stretch whatsoever, refer to as the American Serengeti is kind of a way to reconceptualize it to me in the proper ecological way. This did exist because we've kind of, in a way, forgotten that it existed. The only story that we've preserved out of any of this really is the story of, of bison. And we haven't really preserved yeah. the story of all the grizzly bears that were out on the Great Plains, for example, feeding uh, on the bison surplus and the dead animals, dead bison that drowned in the rivers and so forth. We haven't thought too much about wolves or of driving elk into the mountains or of the pronghorn slaughter or of what happened to the wild horses. We've just thought about bison. But if you think of it in the whole, it's easier to conceptualize it as this really was an American Serengeti that we had. And what's so striking about it to me is that we almost wholesale converted it into this agricultural, privatized landscape, agricultural empire. Yeah. Whereas the colonial powers in Africa, they didn't really do that. I mean, they made sure that we ended up with Serengeti National Park and the Maasai Mara National Preserve and Kruger National Park in the Veld in South Africa. So in Africa, we ended up with these big game parks to preserve the African version of this. And in North America... We declared it flyover country. We declared it flyover country and a place that you just ignored that really wasn't interesting enough for people to even stay there. I mean, it's been... One of the stories of the Great Plains is that unlike any other region of the United States in the 20th and 21st centuries, it endlessly is hemorrhaging population and losing people. So one of the – I mean the way I I end this book is that – so that it's not a complete downer about what we did and it's just all (laughs) gone is that – I mean one of the really uplifting parts of this story is that you get to the 21st century and in Montana – Along the Missouri River, 
we've got this organization called the American Prairie Reserve that has so far raised about $100 million in the last 10 or 12 years in order to try to tie together uh, two big public lands, the Charlie Russell National Wildlife Refuge and the Missouri Breaks National Monument, with the private lands that lie in between them. And what they're trying to do is to, as ranches come up for sale, to try to buy them with yeah willing selling willing, willing seller willing, willing sellers buyer, yeah. yeah and willing buyers with the idea that we can ultimately create this this preserve uh, that will kind of be really a, a, a Yellowstone of the Great Plains. I mean, yeah. and they're hoping for an aerial extent that's going to be twice the size of Yellowstone. Yellowstone is two million acres. They're hoping American Prairie Reserve is hoping for as much as three and a half to four million acres of land where we actually can do what has happened in the parks in Africa and recreate this American Serengeti with all these these animals restored, grizzly bears and gray wolves and pronghorns and bison, of course, and, you know, possibly uh, the full suite of animals that were there 150 years ago. Are they seeking a park designation in the end? No. No, they're not. At least they're not saying they are. No, they're they're sort of arguing at this point that uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be private enterprise that creates it. It's going to be accessible to the public. Um, they're running block management right now. Yeah, on some of it. Yeah, yeah, public access hunting. We'll see. Yeah, cool. You know, just to editorialize a little bit, I think that they'll find tremendous amounts of support. Um, with outdoorsmen, if they articulate, if they clarify and articulate that a little bit, but uh, which might do them some good, it, it would do them some good. It would bring a, a constituency uh, that they may not have anticipated. Yeah. I think, yeah, because unfortunately, just to, I don't know if it's editorializing or not, but when I hear that, I can already hear the voices of. Mm. You know, a lot of people that we deal with every day, when they hear that, they're going, uh-uh. Sounds, sounds, sounds like you're just taking it all away from me. Yeah. But you got to understand that they're dealing with in a private land. They're dealing with private land. Yeah. Already deeded land. Right. Know? So, I mean, in some way you could argue what they're doing right now, they're not decreasing access. Right. Um, I want to I wanna move on to the to your... your uh, the Coyote book? Yeah, but first I want to ask you something, because okay. this has always bothered me. All right. Is there proof that there were not elk in the mountains? I always hear that, this idea that elk were pushed into the mountains. Don't you think that it was there was elk across their entire range? They were eradicated in some areas and continued to survive in some areas. I think there were elk in the mountains, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, like people, when people say, I, I hear that so much, but it just doesn't make sense to me. I, th- I think, you know, there were grizzlies in the mountains. There yeah, were elk was- in the mountains. There were, there were bighorn sheep in the mountains, obviously. Those animals were also out on the Great Plains, and they ended up, the ones that were on the Great Plains ended up either being killed or, or yeah. fleeing to the mountains. Yeah, but being I don't, just gradually pushed by yeah. pressure. Because, I yeah. mean, you can, you can push animals. I mean, we see it today. Like, sure. pressure moves animals. But I just have a hard time imagining that they very quickly learned how to yeah, mountain like, life. Yeah, to, to like yeah. an alpine environment. I'm guessing yeah. that they were just evenly distributed and you saw the the great abundance now we think of them as a mountain animal yeah but they were a plains animal oh man they were a plains animal yeah. for sure yeah there's no doubt all right so lay out the coyote book 
I call them coyotes. I know you, I know the proper terms. Maybe coyote. Well, I call it wily coyote. I don't yeah. call them wily coyote. Right. You don't. You don't say <laughs> wily coyote. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My kids been watching. Um, I let them watch Looney Tunes just because I relate to it, and um, they watch a lot of Roadrunner and Wily Coyote. And outside of my house, there's a phone pole that like provides power to my house that's leaning at a precipitous angle. And my brother was visiting. He commented how that phone pole is going to tip over. And my son asked, well, will the whole house tip over too? And my brother said, I think these kids watch too much Wiley Coyote. <laughs> <laughs> they learn physics from Wiley Coyote. <laughs> yeah. And Wiley Coyote, of course, can fall off the, the highest cliff in the solar system. And, it, you know, it flattens him, but he gets up and walks away from it. Yeah, yeah you can't teach your kids uh, yeah. the, the natural laws by watching that show. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, yeah so, so lay out the coyote book for me. I'm going to call them coyotes just for consistency. Yeah. So, and, but, but what I will say about that is, and I, I, I tell the story in two places, in the introduction and then in a chapter called Prairie Wolves, which is what they were originally called in America. It's, it's, what, the book's Coyote America. The book is called Coyote America, yeah. a Natural and Supernatural History. But uh, I lay out the story in two different places in that book, why you say coyote. And I say coyote. Oh, please. Yeah. And I always said anybody who's ever killed one says coyote. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> sort, of, that's sort of it. People who killed them, who managed them, who attempted to poison them to extermination back in the 1930s, 1940s, all call them coyotes. And the origin of that two-syllable pronunciation goes back to the mountain men who were in the uh, southwest, in the southern Rockies, in the 1830s and 1840s. Because they, for the first time, were encountering a name other than Prairie Wolf. Everybody in America who first encountered coyotes in the early 19th century, starting with Lewis and Clark, that's the name Lewis and Clark gave them, was Prairie Wolf. That's what everybody called them. You know Stanley Hawbaker? Yeah. Yeah. In his old trapping books. Uses that name? Prairie Wolf. Yeah. And I would be like, what in the hell is he talking about? The one day it occurred to me that's what he's talking about, but he was yeah. writing in the 1900s. Yeah, that's right. And there, I've seen examples in, uh, by 1915 or so where people are still using the term Prairie Wolf. That was the Anglo-American name for an animal that they had never seen before because coyotes, I mean, let me back up with their evolution a little bit and because this is a really, they've got the, probably the most fascinating biography of any animal in North America. And it is uh, a surprising and unexpected story, really, that coyotes have. They are part of the evolution of the canid family that took place in North America uh, beginning 5.3 million years ago. And that produced all the wolves, all the jackals, and the coyotes of North America all around the world. So all the jackals of Africa and Southern Europe, all the wolves of the entire globe, all come from the evolution of a North American family of animals, the uh, the canid family that evolved 5.3 million years ago. I've never heard that. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so what's uh, so it, for one thing, it makes coyotes. I mean, they're a distinctively North American animal, in part because they not only evolved here. We think probably in the Southwest is where this family of animals evolved, but unlike jackals and wolves, 
coyotes never left North America. They remained here. Wolves, on the other hand, became cosmopolitan, followed the big herds of animals that were migrating across the Bering Strait and across the uh, the connectivity uh, bridge to Europe and ended up in Europe and Asia and everywhere else. Jackals ended up about a million years ago separating from the coyote line and, and getting into Africa and southern Europe. Coyotes never left. They stayed in North America, and they were found only in the West from the Great Plains westward when Americans like Lewis and Clark first encountered them. So nobody who was settling Plymouth or Jamestown ever encountered a coyote. Yeah. Lewis and Clark get to what is now Nebraska in the fall of 1804, and in the stretch of about, it's about three weeks, they encounter all the classic animals of the American West. They encounter the first bison they've ever seen. Uh, this is in middle of August of 1804. They encounter pronghorn antelope. They encounter, they say, a deer with strangely large ears that hops rather than runs. Is right? yeah. The mule deer. Uh, and then they say, and we keep seeing this fox, a kind of fox that nobody has ever seen before. And after about a week or so of describing seeing this fox, one of the hunters in the party finally shoots one, and William Clark lays it out on the grass, and he starts looking at it, and he says, this is not a fox. This is some kind of wolf. It's a small wolf, but but this is a wolf. And he says, I think the best name for it, since we're out in the prairies, is a prairie wolf. And so Lewis and Clark name it a prairie wolf, and for more than 100 years, many Americans refer to coyotes as prairie wolves. But in the 1830s and 1840s, Americans start going across the plains to Santa Fe after for example, Mexico becomes independent of Spain in 1821. They open up the trade between Missouri and Santa Fe. And so all of these traders are going from St. Louis to Santa Fe, and along with them go mountain men to trap the beaver streams like Kit Carson. And when these guys get to Santa Fe and they start pointing out, there goes a prairie wolf, the people in Santa Fe say, no, that's a coyote. And so these Americans listen to that word coyote, and what they're actually hearing is a Spanish version of a Nahuatl Indian word, and, and, or Nahuatl is the name of the language. Nahuatl is the language that the Aztecs spoke. And some of the settlers who had gone to to found Santa Fe in 1610 had been either Aztec or Nowat speakers, Indians who had been probably subjugated by the Aztecs and forced to speak the Aztec language. And so when they got to Santa Fe and they saw these animals, they used the old Aztec word for them, which was the original pronunciation was coyote. The, right? the Spaniards heard coyote, the Indian word, they converted it to coyote in a Latin pronunciation. 
And then Anglo-Americans start showing up in the 1830s. Coyotes. And they, <laughs> they hear Coyote and his Frederick Ruxton, one of the chroniclers of the mountain man life in the Southern Rockies, says, as we all sat around the campfires in the Southern Rockies in the 1830s and the 1840s, you could hear the Mexicans say Coyote, the Indians say Coyote, and all the trappers would say, they couldn't pronounce that with three syllables, they would say Coyote. Is that right? And, of course, those guys went back to Kentucky and Virginia and Illinois, and when they heard people say, so did you see any prairie wolves out there, they would say, so you mean coyotes? What we've ended up with then is kind of a a bifurcated pronunciation where rural people in America, and as you said a minute ago, people who tend to shoot coyotes, that's what they say. I just, that, that's a coyote. Yeah. But in the sort of more literary circles of urban places. No. Yeah. They use the term. <laughs> they use the term coyote as the as the classic pronunciation. And I think it's probably what they're trying to do is to pay homage to the Spanish pronunciation. Nobody says coyote anymore, but uh, but a lot yeah. of yeah, a lot of people say coyote. That's fascinating, man. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, so there. So that's, two, that's one of many gems that someone one, would discover in your book. Yeah, that's one of the things that you're going to discover. You're also going to discover, as I said, that these are North American animals that evolved more than five million years ago, and one of the fascinating uh, consequences of that today is one of the things we've got going on in the Eastern United States is the emergence of an animal ca- called the coy wolf, and it's an intermixture, an interbreeding between coyotes that under persecution by the federal government and state governments over the last 70 or so years have expanded their range out of the West all over North America. And not just all over North America, not just to Maine and Florida and Virginia, but into all the major cities of the United States. They've done that because they've been persecuted, but it's taken coyotes into places where there are remnant eastern wolves. And one of the things that's happened is that they are freely interbreeding with the red wolves, the endangered red wolf of the south, and with these eastern wolves that are still found in eastern Canada and creating a new predator that is... Yeah, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, northern yeah. Michigan. Yeah. And New York and Virginia and the Deep South, they're creating this animal no, that... I just meant where, where they run into eastern wolves. That's where they yeah, run into yeah. them. Yeah, pr- from the Great Lakes, basically, eastward in Canada. Yeah. And then... And those descendants are going... Yeah. When, when, they, when they interbreed, how does it work? Is it, is it a male wolf, female coyote? Coyote? It's... <laughs> Yeah, it's usually that way. Yeah, it's usually uh, a male wolf and a female coyote, but evidently there have been crosses that have gone the other way. I mean, they produce a. They produce viable offspring, and the reason they do is because red wolves and eastern wolves are also from this North American wolf stock that never left North America. And so they're closely related 
biologically to coyotes. And so they easily interbreed. But in the West, where we have gray wolves, gray wolves, for example, in Yellowstone, when they were introduced into Yellowstone in 1995 and 96, the first thing that happened was that gray wolves knocked the coyote population back in Yellowstone by 50 to 60 percent. Yeah. They, gray wolves, do not interbreed with coyotes. They kill them. They attack them. And the reason we think this is happening is because gray wolves are a, are a, a, a set of wolves. There are five subspecies of them that left North America, evolved for a couple of million years probably in Asia and in Europe, and then only began returning to North America about 20,000 years ago. So they had had enough separate evolution in another part of the globe that by the time they returned to North America, they no longer recognized any biological ties with, with coyotes or with American wolves like red wolves. And their reaction to coyotes has not been to interbreed with them, but to basically attack them and kill them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and coyotes return the favor on foxes. Like where I grew up, we used to have a lot of red foxes, a lot of gray foxes. And, and that's when they roll in, that's That's, one of the first, you know, that's right. It's the big dog, little dog thing. And it it happens at at every, uh, every level. But I mean, I, I was uh, telling you, I mean, before we, we started on air here that, uh, what we think explains the cleverness, the wiliness, and the survivability of coyotes. I mean, if you think about this for a second, we managed to wipe wolves out in North America. Yeah. We extirpated wolves. We did everything we could, even including passing a law in 1931 that earmarked coyotes for total extermination in the United States and have not been able to do it, despite spending billions of dollars and developing a whole witch's brew of poisons to try to eradicate them. We have never been able to do that. So one of the things about the coyote story is that this is a story that turns upside down our our notion about the human relationship to nature where we think we arrive and everything goes shit bang because nothing in nature is able to resist us. The coyote story is completely the opposite. These what, guys have What is won. it attributed to? Like fecundity? It's attributed to the fact that for the last 20,000 years, they have been persecuted by gray wolves and they evolved an ability to survive under persecution and even to colonize new areas under persecution. So what we think is going on is that coyotes haven't evolved their wiliness and their ability to survive in our in our presence and under our persecution just as a result of the last 200 years of us trying to wipe them out. They brought to bear these evolutionary adaptations that go back at least 20,000 years as a result of their interaction with gray wolves. And what they evolved uh, or was a whole suite of these kind of remarkable adaptations. One of them that's probably the most important one is called fission fusion adaptation. And what it means is coyotes, and there are only about 19 mammal species around the world that can do this, 
one of the other ones happens to be us. We do this. And what it means is they have the ability to exist both communally, in the in coyote terms, in packs, or as singles and pairs. And so whereas wolves are only pack animals, and it became kind of their Achilles heel when the government was trying to poison them out because you could kill one wolf out of a pack and use the scent glands of that wolf to bait your your meat cubes and you would in turn in a few days kill every single animal in the pack as they would be drawn to the scent of that lost companion. But coyotes, when you try to do that, their response is to go into this fish infusion kind of adaptation and they just scatter to the winds. And what they do is when you're persecuting them and driving their populations down, one of the things coyotes, I mean, we all love how coyotes howl. What they're actually doing with those howls is they're taking a census of the coyote population in a territory. And if they howl at night and they don't hear responsive howls from other pairs or packs of coyotes, that triggers an autogenic response, a hormonal response in them so that they have larger litters. And so as you drive the population of them down and they take this howling census and don't hear other coyotes in the landscape, they produce larger litters. And what these larger litters often prompt them to do is to go into what's called colonization mode. So they start going out to the edges of their territory and expanding and colonizing. And what it's meant that is that once we started trying to eradicate them, yeah. that produced the spread of coyotes all over North America. I mean, in response to our persecution, they scattered everywhere. Yeah. I once watched a movie, a, a documentary that was highly critical of coyote hunting, okay? And it was like a like a, a pro-coyote movie, highly critical of coyote hunting. And then the thing he makes the point, he's like, the more you hunt them, the more we're going to have. But then I want to think, okay, so if that's true, then I would think that you would welcome hunting because you like them and it makes more of them. It does indeed. If you live in so, Boston and you like them want- and you want them, <laughs> <laughs> you should send your cousin in Nebraska <laughs> To go an email a, to go on a coyote tournament. That's right. Go out and <laughs> go out and blast away at them. Yeah, it's so they, you know, they uh, they make up this this creature that, in a lot of ways, throws environmentalists for a loop. Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation uh, a few months ago with uh, a couple of women who wanted to do a coyote documentary, and we sat down over the conversation, and it emerged fairly quickly that what they wanted to do was to do a documentary to save the coyote. And so I had to say to them, so you realize they don't need your help. They are perfectly capable, thank you, of saving themselves and go about it in a completely nonchalant manner. Trotting by, looking at you with those yellow eyes and sort of see you later, you know, so long yeah. it's been good to know you. And they don't really need your help. Uh, they can do it very well on their own. So it's it's yeah, not there's a hand. There's a hand of a small handful of species like that. Yeah, very small handful. Crows, this, yeah. Canada geese, yeah, coyotes. And these guys are, you know, the truth is, and if we thought of them this way, I think it might change the way people think of them. I mean, what they are is they're a wolf. 
they're a small species of wolf. Mm -hmm. And so what, you know, if you, if you sit in back East in your study and you lament the loss of wolves in America and you would love to see wolves return to America. Look out your window. And a coyote (laughs) trots through your backyard. That's cause for celebration because the fact is uh, that's what they are. And they have managed to, uh, to re-inhabit our landscapes, including our biggest cities. I mean, one of the great recent stories of Coyote was a, a group of people walking out of a bar in Queens last spring and looked up, I heard a sound and looked up and a coyote was on the roof of the bar in Queens looking down at them. And they snap pictures with their phones and somebody, of course, calls the police who alert animal control and the animal control people arrive and the coyote is just sort of walking back and forth along the roof of the bar and people by now are gathered out in the street, traffic's going by. Here's this coyote a few feet away and as soon as the animal control truck comes around the corner with the lights on, the coyote looks back behind him. There's an abandoned building with broken glass in the windows and sort of like some Hollywood action hero. He just sort of hops off the roof of the bar through the broken glass of an (laughs) empty building and it's gone. (laughs) That's great, man. You know, uh, we're getting where I'm going to wrap it up, but I want to remind you something that you said all those years ago when I was in your class. I'm trying to think of what year it would have been. 99? Somewhere here? Something like that, yeah. We were talking about a famous battle, um, adobe walls. Tell everyone what the battle of adobe walls was. I know there's like part one and part two, but you yeah. you were getting, you were driving at a story yeah. about where one of the participants yeah. from the Indian side, from the Native American side, one of yeah. the participants described what went wrong yeah. at that battle. Yeah. Juxtaposed to the narrative of what went wrong from them from the Euro-American side. Yeah. So you can, I'll remind you later what it was, but can you just set the stage for what that battle was? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, and I remember the story I, I told you too. Uh, the, uh, the Battle of Adobe Walls was a battle between buffalo hunters and the Texas Panhandle who were holed up in this old trading fort, uh, which is up above present-day Amarillo on the Canadian River. And a group of Comanches and Southern Cheyennes who, by the Treaty of Medicine Lodge Creek of 1868, knew that buffalo hunters weren't supposed to be below the Arkansas River. The the Treaty of Medicine Lodge Creek, the Indians had insisted the buffalo hunters have to stay north of the Arkansas and Kansas. And And that's basically where the railroad went through, right? Yeah. The Southern Pacific. Yeah. So here these guys were, these buffalo hunters had crossed the deadline and had gone down into the Texas panhandle where they weren't supposed to be. And so this group of Comanches and Southern Cheyennes felt perfectly justified in attacking this buffalo hunter camp. And so they mounted up a war party and about five o'clock in the morning, just as it, as it was starting to get light, they decided to make a raid on this camp and wipe these guys out. And from the side of the story of the buffalo hunters, some guy gets up at about 4.30 or 5 in the morning. He's got to go outside and take a whiz. And he's, as he's taking a whiz, he looks up on the ridge and he sees silhouetted in the coming twilight of the morning this group of 
Indians getting ready to ride down on them. That's one version of what happened. Another is that uh, this was an old fort and a, a Vega or one of the roof beams cracked and it woke somebody up. Yeah, and they, that's yeah, one. I, I'd, yeah. I'd read that. Yeah. And they walked outside and were looking around to see what had happened and looked up. So it was supporting it was earth and roof supporting earth a tremendous amount of weight. It was an old adobe, yeah. old adobe building, and this roof beam cracked. And so it woke a couple of them up, and they walked outside, and they saw. Anyway, the Indians launched an attack, which they thought was going to be a surprise attack on this sleeping camp, and it turned out some of these guys were already up. And so they repulse the attack and the Indians in attempting to explain it later. So we'll see if this is how you remember. This is exactly how I remember. The Indians in attempting to explain it later use their own, own cause effect logic to explain why this had happened the way it had. And their logic was not that, damn, we were going to launch a surprise attack and some of those guys were already up and they alerted everybody else. Their logic was on the way to the attack that morning, one of the Cheyennes had shot a skunk and it was taboo to arrow a skunk. And so that had screwed the medicine for the whole band. And so when they launched that attack, they no longer had the right medicine with them. And in their cause and effect explanation, which we would call a supernatural explanation for why it failed, this was the reason. A taboo had been broken. The animals had turned against them, and therefore the attack was a failure. It took me 10 years to understand what that story means. I resisted it at first. Yeah. I was like, that's not what happened. What happened was, yeah. but but when you were telling, you were making the point of, um, we have our ways of explaining things. Yeah. And we have these things that are true to us, you know? And it, I, I, like a decade later, I'm like, you know, I do, I finally, I'm old enough now, or I've been around enough now, where I'm like, he was right. He's right. It's because the goddamn skunk. So, so you, you worry about that for 10 years, huh? <laughs> I would return to it periodically. Um, yeah, you never said anything. Randall, you didn't say much. You guys got any, you guys got any concluding thoughts? Man, too many to name. This is one of my favorite podcasts to date, I think. Um, I have a clarifying question. Well, I have a couple of things. One, I'm wondering if we have enough time, because I think we, we could, if it's all right with you, if you can chat a little bit longer, I would love sure. to hear, to talk about the, just the bite, if we could get like the very abridged version of the the bison the bison story story you mean but his, yeah. his his influential paper he referred yeah. to and then coyotes it, it, it's always kind of like this myth that you hear about like the more you shoot them the more there's going to be so really what, what what you explain that is to be true like they're they are going to produce more offspring the more pressure you put on them whatever poisoning shooting yeah, so one of the ways that we know it's different from what it could be is that we had about 70 years in Yellowstone, for example, of healthy coyote population, nobody hunting them, right? no wolves there, because wolves are eliminated from Yellowstone by about 1925, and we don't get wolves there again until 1995. So we have this period of about 70 years where there's a coyote population that biologists can study 
that don't get pressured either by people or by gray wolves. And what they did is very interesting. Their population rose to this carrying capacity plateau, and it never got any bigger. And so as soon as wolves arrived, what happened was the coyote population dropped by almost half, but then under wolf pressure, it has begun to build back to its original size and larger, and they have scattered out of the park. So it it's almost like this test case of the theory of whether or not it's pressure that causes them both to colonize and expand their range and also cause their, causes their population to rise. And so the guy who's done this study uh, also did, uh, for his Ph.D. dissertation, he studied uh, the, the Hanford Preserve around Hanford where the same thing was true. There were no wolves. People weren't shooting, trapping, or poisoning coyotes. Where is this reserve? It's in Washington State. It's the Hanford Nuclear Site. And what he discovered was the same phenomenon that without pressure, their populations rise to this carrying capacity level, and then they they don't get any bigger. And the reason they don't is because it's not so much the litter sizes fall. They fall to maybe four or five pups, whereas when they're under pressure, sometimes they'll have 13 or 14 pups. But the litter size would fall to about four or five pups, and because the uh, the population of coyotes was at the carrying capacity of the resources, they would not often be able to get all those pups raised without losing a couple of them or maybe three of them because there just wasn't enough, weren't enough resources out sure. there to raise the entire litter. And so that seemed to be the the what provided the ceiling. Um, so... I mean, we actually do have a couple of these sort of test cases where you can observe what happens if they don't have any pressure on them. And Yellowstone is probably the, the best one. But as I said, there's this, this at least one other one, too, that people have studied. Can I ask a follow-up question? Well, no, because he hasn't gotten oh. – he, he, he wanted him to explain the no, bison ecology, bison diplomacy. I know, I know about a follow-up question with the coyotes. Yeah, oh. sure. Go ahead. The um, – then does that flip like the whole predator control thing to like basically kill more coyotes equals more big bucks? How does that relate to that? In your well, in just the research that you've done in your opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a so for example, state of Utah uh, with a mule deer protection act a few years ago. Yep. You know, created a bounty on a state bounty on coyotes. They did that almost. Two years to the day after a major study came out on coyote effects on mule deer populations in Idaho. It was a result of about a 10-year study on coyotes and mule deer. And the conclusion of this study, authored by about 15 or 16 biologists, was that coyotes had virtually no effect on mule deer populations. And, I mean, this is one of those classic instances, almost like like climate science or something. Some major study comes out, and next door, the neighboring state completely ignores it and nonetheless goes ahead and puts a bounty on coyotes in order to save mule deer. 
So the science that's out there indicates, I mean, and this science goes back to the 1930s, really, when the Murray brothers were studying coyote depredations in Yellowstone and in Jackson Hole, because the biological survey, after they wiped out wolves, they decided, I mean, you know, you can kind of see the transparency of it. It's the government bureau. Our major target is gone. We got to survive some way. So they proclaim the coyote is the arch predator of our time. It turns out, actually, most of that predation that was going on, that was really coyotes and not wolves. So we need, government needs to keep funding us and we need to continue to, to, to do this predator control thing. And they send the Murray brothers out to study coyote predation on game animals as the arch predator of our time in Yellowstone and Jackson Hole. And both the Murray brothers, Olas and Adolf, both argue that we have no evidence that coyotes are causing the population of sheep, mule deer, pronghorns, bighorns, elk, any of those animals to go down. I mean, it's true in bad winters, they will sometimes manage to kill a calf. And you can certainly find as the Bureau had, as hunters had argued, well, we can open their stomachs up after we poison them, and it's got elk meat. But the Murray brothers watched them close enough to realize it's scavenged. I mean, these elk herds are, in bad winters, there are animals dying, and for sure the coyotes are going out and scavenging on the dead animals, but they're not out there hauling down elk in packs of little coyotes nipping at their heels. The same conversation is happening right now in the East with whitetails where a lot of, even though study after study keeps coming out saying, you know, I think that the whitetail decline we've been seeing in the last, you know, five, six, seven years is contemporaneous with coyotes coming in. Um, it seems that maybe it's not what's really going on here. There could be other factors at play and there's a great reluctance yeah. with people to accept that. Because it's it's a it just it's clean. Yeah, we like we love scapegoats, you know. It's clean. It's, yeah. it's clean to think that way. Yeah. I got friends in Wisconsin, good friends, who on one hand advocate on we need to shoot more whitetails. We got too many whitetails. It's we got an unhealthy herd. There's too much risk of disease transmission. Got to shoot coyotes because. They're going after the deer. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, they don't want the coyote to get the deer. You know, they yeah. want to. They want to put their tag on it. Yeah. But but I do. You know, I do. I had a guy recently telling me that the the thing he and he's he's a very astute observer of the natural world in his area in Kentucky, and he was saying that he's he says I'll tell you one thing that happened when coyotes came in here. He says, fucking groundhogs vanished. <laughs> I'll bet they did. No one else is crying yeah. for groundhogs, but he's like, that's one thing I do think is exactly attributable. Because I think they came in and just hammered the groundhogs. Oh, I'm sure they probably <laughs> did that. You know, and what people in you know in New York and Chicago and Denver and LA, I'll argue, is that you know, your pets aren't safe when coyotes yeah. are in town. That's the that's that that argument is the least interesting to me. Yeah, well, that's I just that's you know for a, for a lot of people living in the suburbs, that's the thing that I mean. I just saw online the other day a couple that had invented a coyote vest, 
and you put it on your little dog and it's got these spikes coming out of the vest and some sort of quills that come up off the back of its neck and it's supposed to repel coyote attacks. And I mean, they're advertising on the internet that they've got these coyote vests that yeah. you can buy. But I mean, what's actually going on is it's not, everybody thinks what's happening is that coyotes in urban situations, you know, they're scavenging, uh, they're scavenging garbage from the back of the McDonald's and the Burger King and they're, they're eating cats and they're eating poodles and stuff. I mean, the truth is what they do in urban areas is the same thing they do in rural areas. They basically go after mice and rats. Eat a lot of grasshoppers and shit, They too. eat a lot of grasshoppers, <laughs> a lot of fruit, and primarily mice and rats. And although they do kill cats and they do kill small dogs, it's not because they're eating them. It's because they regard them as intra-guild competitive predators and they see a cat or a small dog out there and their response to that is that this is another predator that's invaded my territory yeah and so they will kill them but i mean very rarely will they haul them off and chow down on them i mean this is just another one of the urban myths about coyotes that's out there from the perspective of the pet owner, it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> probably doesn't matter. The animal is dead. Yeah. It's like, and he ate him. And, or- <laughs> it, and it might be better, actually, if they haul the cat down to the den of pups and actually the cat got was made some use of. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, coyote vest. So you can, <clears throat> you can acquire one, no doubt, soon for your cat as well as your dog. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash me eater rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing right and you probably got rain gear but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day man i was just in hawaii and i had my columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie with me and here's the deal we're in and out of the water all the time getting to go spear fishing getting out taking the kids to the beach i'm not gonna mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. 
Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. That was your follow-up question. You wanted to know about bison, though, the story? Bison, yeah, your paper. Yeah. Please. Well, the, the chapter that I do in American Serengeti on bison, uh, is a, it's a new take. And so it's not, the, it's not a regurgitation of my original 1991 story, although I do, I do build on that. And what that 1991 story argued was that what we've thought about what happened to bison is far too simple. I mean, we've basically have always argued that, you know, they there were still 60 million of them at the end of the Civil War, and these buffalo hunters go out in the space of 20 years. They managed to wipe out 60 million animals in the market hunt, and that's what happened to them. And what I argued in that piece back in 1991 was that the truth is uh, the bison herds for one thing, were never that big. They were only about half that size. And secondly, they were dwindling visibly as early as 1850 because of a, a whole group of causes that kind of came together like a perfect storm in the 1840s and 1850s. And uh, one of them certainly was the market hunt, although it wasn't the hide, the the American hide hunters who were responsible. It primarily was Indians being caught up in the the buffalo robe trade uh, that was sponsored by the fur companies. Robe being hides with fur on, yeah, hides with hair on, right, and and tanned by Indian women who were who were the processors, who were the labor force, and uh, the men would go out and and procure the animal, and the women would take the pelt off and then tan the the robe and produce this marketable commodity that was then traded to uh, to the fur trade companies. So uh, there was a there for was a wagon blankets and for all kinds of yeah, things. Primarily, and- primarily as people were were sort of competing for the last big buffalo hunting grounds. In many instances, uh, what they were getting in trade were firearms and ammunition and powder. Uh, metal goods of all kinds, certainly textile blankets and, and beads and things, but often firearms and, and ammunition because there was a there was a competition for these last grounds of of huntable animals. I mean, the Lakota people, 
the Western Lakotas were driving across the Great Plains from east to west during all these times, taking away the buffalo grounds of the Pawnees, the buffalo, uh, ultimately the buffalo grounds of the crows uh, in order to, to exploit the herds themselves. So it was kind of this capitalist market-fueled intertribal competition for the, the last remaining resource. So that was one of the causes, but there, there were others. One was the spread of horses across the plains again, which ate the same grass, uh, drank the water that bison drank, and so and the horse numbers were becoming high enough that competition between horses and bison was beginning to draw down the size of the buffalo herds. And there was, as well, the fact that diseases, exotic bovine diseases, uh, whose impact we can't really quantify, but things like bovine tuberculosis and anthrax were having an impact by the 1840s because of the immigrant trails that were going across the plains. And then perhaps the one that's uh, the easiest to, to assess in terms of quantifying is the change in climate that was happening in the 1840s and 1850s. And what, it, what was going on was that what we called the Little Ice Age, about a 250-year period of much cooler, wetter temperatures in the northern hemisphere, was coming to an end in the 1840s and 1850s. And as it came to an end, it was producing a series of droughts. Uh, there was a a drought on the Great Plains in the 1850s and early 1860s that was probably the most severe drought that we have a record of in the last thousand years. And as it drew down the carrying capacity of the grasslands, what this meant was that buffalo didn't have as much grass to eat. And so the numbers were were plummeting as a result of deteriorating uh, environmental conditions for them. And one final thing that I talked about, I talked about all of these causes in this article, which argued for this multiplicity of causes. The one other one I talked about was the fact that in the past, when conditions like this had prevailed on the Great Plains, buffalo had tended to migrate westward into the mountains where there was more grass and lusher conditions and eastward out into the prairies towards the Mississippi River where there would be more more grass and more rainfall. But by the 1840s, American Indian policy had basically placed something like 85,000 eastern Indians in Kansas and Oklahoma in the Indian Territory as a part of the removal policy, the most famous aspect of which is the Cherokee Trail of Tears where they're taken out of the southeast and put out in Oklahoma. And that puts this body of people right in the way of where buffalo would formerly have spread eastward in order to to sort of relieve the pressure of a drought out on the plains. So they don't have any refuges to expand into anymore, and they're just kind of caught out in a deteriorating Great Plains landscape with all these other effects. And so the argument became that by 1850, I mean, we actually probably only have maybe 12, 14 million buffalo left on the Great Plains, not 60 million. So by the end of the Civil War, that makes it quite a bit easier for the white hide hunters to arrive and sort of shoot down the remaining animals. Right. So that was the story that I did in 
1991, and I certainly fold a good bit of that into the chapter on Buffalo, but I try to tell a a, a sort of a bigger story in, in this chapter in American Serengeti about Buffalo, and, and the main thing that I take on is our supposition that we all have, I mean, you can go online and find find T-shirts that sort of argue for this, that it was a conspiracy between the federal government and the American military that wiped out the yeah, buffalo. That's such yeah. a, that people still they, talk about that. Yeah, they still talk about it. And the scapegoat of it is Philip Sheridan. Yeah. And Philip Sheridan, you can go online right now and find a T-shirt with this quote on the front of it. Philip Sheridan is supposed to have made this speech in Austin, Texas, in the early 1870s, when the Texas legislature, as the story is told over and over again, was considering a bill to outlaw the hide hunt in the Texas panhandle. And Sheridan supposedly goes to Austin and stands up in front of the Texas legislature and says, you can't do this. What you should be doing, in fact, is making sure that those animals are wiped out in order to be able to put the Indians on reservations and open up the plains to the festive cowboy and the speckled cattle. And he goes on to say, instead of... uh, denigrating these buffalo hunters, you should give them a medal. They should be recognized as American heroes, and the medal should have a discouraged Plains Indian on one side and a dead buffalo on the other side. And so this story gets told. I mean, amazingly enough, no historian had ever looked at the origin of this story. It's told by a buffalo hunter in 1905, during the conservation period of Teddy Roosevelt at a time when we were trying to save buffalo and a lot of people thought of these buffalo hunters as having been murderers of all these animals. And this buffalo hunter named John Cook writes a memoir published in 1905 called The Border and the Buffalo. And he produces this speech, which is something like Patton's speech at the beginning of that movie. You can almost see the American flag rippling behind Sheridan as he says all this. And historians, journalists, the Buffalo Field Campaign up in Yellowstone have just bought this thing hook, line, and sinker. And nobody has ever bothered to go back and say, first of all, did Texas ever actually try to pass a law to outlaw the buffalo hunt in the panhandle? Did Philip Sheridan ever actually go to Austin, Texas and make a speech in front of the Texas legislature? And the answer to both those is Texas never considered such a law. And in fact, when a law like this came up in the national legislature, it was the Texas component that fought it tooth and nail at the national level. Philip Sheridan, we have no record that he ever went to Austin, Texas, and made such a speech. And the source of the story, then, you realize, is this buffalo hunter who's writing his memoir at a time when buffalo hunters are being castigated. And when you look closely at the story, he even starts it out with this disclaimer of, it is said that 
the Texas legislature was considering. So he does this kind of removes himself removes himself from it. It's not me. It is sad, however. And so I tell this story in this chapter in order to try to disabuse Didn't people. You dispatch a grad student down. The guy who's, to go through all the I shit did. down there. Yeah. And you remember this because that happened when you were at Montana. Dan Brister is his Went name. Down there and stayed he, down is, there. he is now the director of the Buffalo yeah. Field Campaign. Yeah. Dan is now the director of it. And he's the grad student who went down to Austin to try to find all this and came back from his spring break in a week of being down there. He was working for the Buffalo Field Campaign then and said, man, I got to say, <laughs> it's not there. And so a friend of mine who works in the National Archives, knowing that I was working on this, dug up for me the sort of the ultimate sort of reversal of this. I mean, I don't know if this will rescue Philip Sheridan's reputation or not, but Philip Sheridan was in Montana territory in 1878 and heard about buffalo hunters shooting down buffalo right and left and wrote a telegram to Washington saying, I want this buffalo hunting stuff stopped right now. We are going to end up with Indians who don't have a bite to eat this summer because these white guys are shooting down all these animals. We've got to stop this buffalo hunt. I'm not shitting you. And so (laughs) I quote Sheridan's exact opposite story than what he's been credited as saying in history. That story is everywhere. It's everywhere, yeah. When I was kind of immersed in this whole world, it was like, the thing, it's just like, oh, I had already known because I'd, I'd heard about that. And, and I'd just like, always oh, just dismayed by how many people would point that out. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. So Again, one of the things like, I do it's in America's comfortable. It's a comfortable, <laughs> easy thing. Well, it's, I mean, so think about it. We tried to claim that, you know, in the aftermath of the Civil War, that the Civil War is not about slavery. It's a, about the southern way of life. It's about preserving a culture in the South. I have a brother back in in Texas who still argues this. And so, I mean, that's the reason these kinds of stories are comfortable to us is that it removes the responsibility for the action in history from us to some agency out there like the federal government that everybody is always quick to take aim at and so it wasn't we we didn't do it the federal government and the military did this yeah i mean and the truth is of course we did it american citizens did it the market hunt did it unrestrained capitalism did it i've tried when i was writing about hide hunters in in my buffalo book i uh, i don't think i don't know if i ever i don't think i actually wrote this but I, when i was talking about it I would say, let, let's just sound like I'm condemning these guys. I want to say, in all honesty, I'd have been right out there with them. Yeah. Well, there were a lot the of guys who were broke after the that's war. The thing. And, How yeah. in the world yeah. would they have could even, like, you got some guy pushing the plow, like you said, the Ohio Valley or coming out of Pennsylvania, right? Next to no education or no education, quite possibly illiterate, has never been out there. 
that it's like that he's like, I'll go out there and fix them Indians and shoot. It's just like not what he was going out there for. He was going out there for undef- like money, adventure. You know, it's, it's like the grand picture wasn't there. I would like yeah. as much as like I grew up, you know, I was talking about this earlier today. I grew up shopping for a trap line in Canada. It's like I, if I was alive at that time, if I was alive at that time, I'd have been like, you're shitting me. Let's go <laughs> before they're gone. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I, I can't say that I wouldn't have been right out there too. Uh, it's impossible to say at the time, but yeah. but it's like, yeah, it's a simple, you know, you take these like kind of like everyday motivations, the kinds of things people still do and still think about and apply it in that context at that time. And that's yeah, the kinds of things you wind up with. You know, it's, and like, and there it's were, not that mysterious. There were some of these buffalo hunters like John Cook, the guy who wrote this memoir, who, I mean, they they defended it all to the end, even when society had turned against it. Um, I mean, there was a guy down in Texas, J. Wright Moore, who used to lead parades in his buffalo hunter outfit, and he had this— His book's Buffalo Bone Days. That's it? right, yeah. Buffalo Bone Days. And his <laughs> stock speech was that all the buffalo— between the Brazos River and the Platte didn't amount to one homesteader family somewhere in Kansas. And so don't go mourning all those buffaloes. That didn't amount to a single thing. One homesteader family amounted to more than that. But there were some of them, Buffalo Jones, you know, in in Kansas. And you know about this guy, Steve, I know. I mean, he sort of spent the rest of his life stricken with guilt about what he had done. He said, I spent my entire youth trying to wipe these animals out. And now I'm going to try to atone for that wickedness by attempting to save some of them for America in the 20th century. Yeah, he'd ride out, try to rope up calves, and then put them on cows to... That's right. Put them on cows to get milk. Yeah. And he knew from his hunts where some buffalo, even when everybody thought they were all gone, he knew... There are some of them left in the Texas Panhandle where I used to hunt in those breaks along the Ano Escado. I guarantee I can go down and find some, and he did. He went down and found a group of about 60, and this was seven or eight years after everybody was convinced that there were no more buffalo on the Southern Plains. I mean, but these guys, you know, they knew how to hunt, and they knew guns, and a lot of times that's all they knew how to do. And so here was an opportunity to make some money from it, and they went out and and did it, but when you got twenty thousand of them out there on the plains and doing it, the ultimate result is ultimate result is in our time, we only get to read books about this or see movies about it and one of the things that kind of excites me about the idea of the American Prairie Reserve and recreating the American Serengeti is I want to experience it myself. I don't want to just read a book about what it was like yeah. or see, go see the Revenant to see what the West was like. I mean, I want to, you know, as Thoreau said, I want, to, I want an entire heaven and an entire earth. I don't want to think that some demigod has come along before me and plucked the best of the stars out of the sky. Yeah. So you're rooting for it. The return of the American Serengeti. I am, man. Absolutely. It's a noble cause. There's a lot of, you know, 
There's a lot of arguing. <laughs> a lot yeah. of arguing needs to happen. In, in Phillips <laughs> County, Montana, I think there's a lot of arguing. Yeah. A lot of arguing's going to happen. Yeah. I certainly agree. Yeah, I certainly agree with the goal. Um, it's going to be like all worthwhile things. It's going to it's going to amount to a fight. You know. Yeah. Well, getting Yellowstone was you know that was uh, that was not a huge fight, but it was something of a no, fight. Pete, we all everyone listen. Everyone's come to agree. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt's a great man. Everything yeah. he did was great. You think at the time when he says, "Hey, I got an idea." Yeah. People were piss <laughs> people yeah. were livid well they were livid about the grand canyon you know when he when he made it into a national monument i mean people were furious about that especially in arizona yeah and uh in arizona territory i mean they were absolutely furious about it but as roosevelt said you know nothing man is going to be able to do to it is going to improve improve what it is the ages have been at work on it and so all we can do is detract from it. Yeah. The best thing to do is to, is to preserve it as it is. And I think in this American Serengeti issue, it's not that we have a, a remnant thing that we can preserve. We're going to have to recreate that, and that's going to be that's an even that's an even bigger task. Yeah. yeah, it's different than setting something pristine aside. But it yeah, is. Yeah, recreating something is a bigger project, but it's kind of to me on the scale of of uh, setting, you know, the world's first national park aside in the form of Yellowstone. Uh, and so it's kind of a one of these big vision things for our time, the way Yellowstone was for people in the 19th century. Yeah. There's a, it, it's coming up now, like just in, in the political environment where people look at chunks of wildland and like the wildland sort of has to, justify its existence it's like oh it's sitting there doing nothing as though at every minute wild places are supposed to be like to lay out their ledgers and prove at any given moment like what their value yeah. is in the moment yeah when i think that a more accurate way of thinking about wild places is it's like money in the bank what am i doing with it right now it's setting there, yeah. and that shit's getting more and more valuable. That's right. Every minute. And I don't know. I might not cash it. My children might not cash it. My grandparents might not cash it, right? Or my grandchildren might not cash it. But at the same time, it's just something they're getting exponentially more valuable. Yeah, no kidding. As time goes by. And it's like disgusting to me that somehow people look at a chunk of ground and it has to justify itself. It's that. In, uh, terms, of, in terms of jobs. Aldo Leopold, he had this line where he said that uh, America. Just in case you don't know, Aldo Leopold was a, one of the fathers of the modern conservation movement, an avid hunter and fisherman. And he had this line where he said that we've uh, become like hypochondriacs about our economic health, where we're incapable of being healthy, where we view our economic health as like, you know, full, so full of anxiety about it that we can't realize that we're actually okay. You know, and I think that the way wild lands need to just like, in sort of some kind of petty economic way, account for what they're doing in the job cycle. All right. Like who's creating more jobs? It's a thing like in hunting and fishing right now, so many people are start, starting to say like, okay, we got to do, we should do conservation work because look at the economic imprint of hunters and fishermen. You know, we contribute all these billions of dollars to the economy every year. And I went up thinking to myself, okay, 
So let's say you did that same math and realized that having clean air and clean water in wild places is costing us money. Does that mean we feel differently about it? Like that doesn't change my perspective on it. I'm not like, oh yeah, you're right. We should have wilderness because we're making money off it. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I, I hear that. And I'm like, you know, that's great, but I, it doesn't change my opinion one way or the other. I don't like it less or more now that you've justified its value well, to me. That's, that's trying to think in, uh, about values that are sort of outside economic determinism and trying to insert them into that kind of model. But I mean, there are some things that you don't put price tags on. I mean, there are a lot of the, seems to me, the finer sentiments in the human spirit are not really things that you add up in ledgers. Uh, I mean, you know, I I still believe in that that great old Wallace Stegner line about the geography of hope. That's kind of, to me, what wild places represent. So, I mean, as our population grows around the globe, I mean, we're going to be putting more pressure on wild places and shrinking the possibility of biodiversity. Uh, and that's the theme of the modern era. So every opportunity, it seems to me, when you can take a stand against that and even reverse it with something like this American Prairie Reserve idea, I mean, I'm, uh, that, that makes me want to endorse it and, and uh, work on behalf of it. Because I think the the primary theme is in the other direction. So, yeah, this this American Serengeti, American Prairie Reserve project is kind of an opportunity to do good in the classic old Aldo Leopold, Teddy Roosevelt fashion. And it's probably one of the reasons that you know groups like the National Geographic, for instance, and the Grosvenor family are really excited about it because it does have a little bit of a whiff of that old-time, big-vision conservation uh, thinking. Do you know uh, Leopold's kid is a hydrologist, I believe? I've never, I don't think I've ever met him. I, th- I could be messing this up. I think he has a son, Luna. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love He's yeah. a hydrologist. Yeah. He has a great quote. And I, could be, I could mess this up, too, but I think it's kind of right. Where he says, uh, rivers are the gutters through which run the ruins of continents. It's uh, a good yeah, one. Yeah, that's a good one, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could toss good quotes from these guys around for a long time. <laughs> All right, I don't have any concluding thoughts. That was a fine conclusion. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Yeah. That was great. Professor, yeah. Former professor, current <laughs> author, Dan Flores. Go out and find your books. You can get them on Amazon pre-order them or order them order one pre-order one yeah i think that's the way it is now you can order american serengeti and pre-order coyote america and coyote america is not very far away about six weeks or so yeah yeah order now you get it early all right thanks man you bet thanks
I'm telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.